I had a dream last night that uh, I was giving a talk on Sangha Day. It's true, it is. And uh, after 15 minutes of announcements, I went up to the man who was announcing and said, I've got to give a talk this evening. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, <laughs> very honoured to have um, Jutika here, who was given a ticket to go and see Bob Dylan this evening. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't start till nine o'clock. No, it fell through, actually. Fell through? Oh, I'm not so one of them. Okay. Very honoured to have you all here. <laughs> anyway, so I decided to give this talk on happiness. Um, what's it got to do with Sangha Day? Well, it does have a connection in that usually when we do a puja and there are readings in the puja puja is what we're going to do afterwards there um, one of the readings that we almost always have is a reading from the dharmapada on a section called happiness and i'm just going to read you the first few verses of that happy indeed we live friendly amid the haters among men who hate we dwell free from hate Happy indeed we live, healthy amid the sick. Among men who are sick, we dwell free from sickness. Happy indeed we live, content amid the greedy. Among men who are greedy, we dwell free from greed. Happy indeed we live, we for whom there are no possessions. Feeders on rapture shall we be, like the gods of brilliant light. Because we read that on Sangha Day, I thought, well, why don't I give a talk on happiness? Um, so I decided to, and um, I've been in, interested in the theme of happiness for a little while now, ever since a friend of mine put me onto a book called Happiness by a man called Richard Layard, who's an economist. So, I read that book, really appreciated it, and he referred to a book called Authentic Happiness by a man called Richard, uh, Martin Seligman, Authentic Happiness, so I read that, and that was good, and he referred to a man called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, who wrote a book called Flow, and it says here, the classic work on how to achieve happiness. So, I haven't read all of that, I've read a certain amount of it. Um, and I've found them all very interesting, and I have a particular interest in happiness, in that I'm not always happy. Um, in fact, I do have a tendency to get depressed. Uh, more recently, I've more or less got that under control, and I'm managed to keep it at bay, depression at bay. So when I came across these books on happiness, I thought, ah, now that I'm not always depressed, maybe I can do the next thing and actually become happy. So I read the books really to see if I could become happier than I am. <clears throat> I've also found out recently that happiness seems to be a very fashionable concept. You heard about this television series, The Slough Coaches, on television. There are six um, t 
television programmes about people trying to make people in Slough happy. <laughs> and I presume it's a very hard place to be happy in Slough. Um, there's that John Betjeman line, isn't there? Come friendly bombs and fall on Slough. So um, maybe they thought it would be a good challenge. And also, uh, on a recent, in a recent issue of Tricycle, the American Buddhist magazine, um, that's all about happiness. It's called the happiness craze. That's where I realised that I was just in the middle of a great big fashion. Didn't realise. <laughs> so anyway, going back to that quote from the Dharmapada, we, it says, happy indeed we live. We being the Sangha, Buddhists. So, the Sangha is characterised by happiness, or perhaps should be characterised by happiness. So I'm going to talk about um, happiness, but, and I'm going to talk about it not very much from the Buddhist point of view, actually. I'm going to refer to each of these three books that I've read, going to mention some of their main ideas. Then I'm going to talk about the particular Buddhist um, perspective on happiness. So the first one is this book called Flow by uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. <laughs> it's a great name, isn't it? He's Hungarian, that's why he's got um, such an unusual name. One of the great things about that book is there's just one idea in it. And so I can just tell you about that one idea. The other books have got all sorts of ideas, but this book Flow has just got one idea. Um, and it came from his own experience. His father was uh, an aristocrat, Hungarian aristocrat, and he was an ambassador in Rome during the war, Second World War. And then in 1948, when Stalin took over Hungary, um, everyone in the embassy had to get out of the embassy, it was closed and they had to get out and obviously they didn't want to go back to Hungary. Um, so there was all these displaced ambassadors and civil servants and so on in Rome hung of Hungarian descent. Cik uh, Szentmihályis, I'm sorry I'm going to have to mention this this man's name many times during this talk, Cik Um his father opened a restaurant in Rome, but some of the other adults he noticed who left the embassy, and I'm quoting here, collapsed into hopelessness and despondency. Without money, without jobs, they became empty shells. Whereas others did very well. So, she sent me, I'll call him Mihai, that's easier isn't it, Mihai wanted to know why some of these people did quite well and others didn't do very well at all. So, while, while in Italy he grew up, he read philosophy, history and religion, apparently looking for an, an explanation, looking for a reason. And then he emigrated to the USA and he studied Jung and became a psychologist. And then, apparently, he began a lifelong quest to discover the key to human beings at their best and find out what made people happy and what made them unhappy. So I'm just going to read you a section from this. So I spent the next quarter century investigating this elusive phenomenon. 
What I discovered was that happiness is not something that happens. It is not the result of good fortune or random chance. It is not something that money can buy or power command. It does not depend on outside events, but rather on how we interpret them. Happiness, in fact, is a condition that must be prepared for, cultivated and defended privately by each person. People who learn to control inner experience will be able to determine the quality of their lives, which is as close as any one of us can come to being happy. So that's interesting, isn't it? I'm going to have to move because this is uh, tickling the back of my head. And this is cool. That's heavy. Phew. Does it? Okay, let's hope that works better. Uh, where was I? Oh yes, yeah, so what he did, Mihai, he interviewed hundreds of what he called experts, that is, people who spent their time doing things they really loved doing as a living. Uh, athletes, artists, surgeons, chess players, uh, musicians, etc. He did that for quite a long time, and later he and a team interviewed thousands of people from all walks of life from all over the world, including old women from Korea, adults from Thailand and India, he makes that distinction, old women from Korea, adults from Thailand and India, teenagers from Tokyo, Navajo shepherds, farmers in the Italian Alps, workers on the assembly line in Chicago, women from the highlands of Borneo, <laughs> don't know why women from the highlands of Borneo, meditating monks from Europe. So they interviewed thousands of people over, I don't know how many years, long time. It was a, anyway, it's a 25-year study. I don't know where they got the money from to do this. <laughs> so, as a result of this, Mihai had some very interesting things to say. And he says, most people think that happiness consists in experiencing pleasure. Pleasure is important, but it doesn't by itself bring happiness. And he distinguishes between pleasure and enjoyment. Pleasure, he says, is passive. It's the feeling of contentment you achieve when you get what you want, when your biological needs are met. So, when eating, having sex, resting after some physical exertion, etc., etc. Enjoyable experiences, on the other hand, overlap to a certain extent with pleasure, but there's also something more. And I'm going to quote him here. He says, Enjoyment is active. It occurs when you've not only met some prior expectation or satisfied a need or desire, but also gone beyond what you have been programmed to do and achieved something unexpected, perhaps something even unimagined before. Enjoyment is characterised by this forward movement, by a sense of novelty, of accomplishment. So that's interesting, isn't it? I'm not throughout the talk going to say, oh, Buddhism says that, because there's no need to. But I will every now and then make a comment. 
So he talks in his book about what he calls optimal experience and he calls this flow. And when people experience flow, they are happy. And there are eight aspects to flow. Firstly, flow involves a challenging activity that requires skill. The activity and the skill need not be a physical activity or skill, it could be mental. For instance, um, socialising is a skill. Reading a book is a skill. But also sport, playing a musical instrument, etc. An enjoyment comes at a specific point in that activity. It comes when the activity is equal to your capabilities. So enjoyment appears at the boundary between boredom and anxiety. When you're more capable than the, than the activity requires, you get bored. When the activity is more than you're capable of, you suffer from anxiety and stress. When the two are evenly matched, you experience flow. So that's the first aspect. Second aspect is it in involves the merging of action and awareness. So when all your relevant skills are needed to cope with the challenge of a situation, your attention is completely absorbed by that activity. And you stop being aware of yourself as somehow separate from your actions. Um, so your activity becomes spontaneous. Could you throw my, my glasses, please? I'm finding it a bit difficult to see what I'm doing. Thank you. Uh, yes, so I'm just going to read you a couple of quotes from people that they've interviewed. First one is a dancer. Your concentration is very complete. Your mind isn't wandering. You're not thinking of something else. You're totally involved in what you're doing. Your energy is flowing very smoothly. You feel relaxed, comfortable and energetic. Then a mother who spends time with her daughter. She reads to me and I read to her. And that's a time when I sort of lose touch with the rest of the world. And I'm totally absorbed in what I'm doing. Okay, so that's the merging of action and awareness. And a point he makes, I'm going to have to take these off, can't see you now, uh, is that it seems to be effortless. The activity seems to be effortless, but actually it isn't. It often requires um, strenuous physical exertion or highly disciplined mental activity. But it seems effortless when you're in flow. Third and fourth aspects to flow, I'll take them together. The task has clear goals and it provides immediate feedback. And this is what makes concentration possible. For instance, let's, let's say you're playing a game of tennis or chess. So you need to, um, there are definite goals you've got to reach and it gives you definite feedback about whether you're reaching them or not. Um, and the goal has to be something that stretches you because if it's a trivial goal, it just doesn't interest you. So you could, for instance, set a goal of remaining alive while you lay on the couch. But it's not going to keep you really involved. It won't get you in the state of flow. Okay. Five, you act with a deep but effortless involvement that removes from awareness the worries and frustrations of everyday life. This is 
a lovely aspect of flow. So when you're in this state of flow, you forget all about the unpleasant aspects of your life because they're to do with the past and the future. They're not happening now. So in normal everyday experiences, as you know, we're prey to thoughts, stray thoughts and worries. If you've ever been doing something you quite enjoy and then a thought comes into your mind, you go, Ugh, that kind of thing. That doesn't happen in the state of flow. So that's why it's so enjoyable and that's why people are very happy when they're, when they're in that state. Six, enjoyable experiences allow people to ex exercise a sense of control over their actions. So it's a sense of control. It's not that you always have control, but you feel like you've got control. What this seems to mean is that you lose that sense of worry about losing control, which is so typical of life. You know, you're doing something and you're a bit scared you're going to lose it. But in the sense of flow, you don't have that fear. You're just completely involved in what you're doing. Seven. Now, this is a really interesting one. Loss of self-consciousness. Put my glasses back on. What I'll do is I'll do that and I can see you as well. Okay, so just as in the, in the experience of flow, the activity is so engrossing, there's not enough attention left over for you to be thinking about the past and the future and therefore you've got no worries. Another item that disappears from consciousness is your sense of self. So what does that mean? He's quite clear of what he means about this. He says, it means a loss of a sense of self as separate from the world around you. And it's also sometimes accompanied by a feeling of union with your environment or union with other people. So this sense of separate, cut-off selfhood is gone in the state of flow. It doesn't mean that you're not aware of what happens in your body or your mind. So as there were two, um, there's a double negative there. I'll say it again. You are aware of what happens in your body and your mind. And it's got nothing to do, he says, with the obliteration of the self, of a going with the flow, Southern California style. That was his quote. So what he means is it's a loss of consciousness of the concept of the self. Or in other words, how you represent yourself to yourself. In Buddhism, this is known as self-view. And he says that a major constraint, constraint on people actually enjoying themselves is a consciousness of a fear of how you appear to other people. When you're in that state, that sort of overly self-conscious state, and you're wondering how people are going to view you, you're all awkward, aren't you? And you can't sort of get into this state of flow. So it's not a loss of self and it's not a loss of consciousness, but it's a loss of that self-consciousness in that funny sense. So when we're not preoccupied with ourselves, we actually have a chance. Oh no, something else I want to say. This ability to forget yourself temporarily is very enjoyable. So when we're not preoccupied with ourselves, we actually have a chance, he says, to expand the concept of who we are. So this loss, this temporary loss of self-consciousness can lead to self-transcendence, to a feeling that the boundaries of our self, the boundaries of our being are being pushed outwards and pushed forwards.
And then he says something very interesting. He says, people experiencing flow have a concrete experience of a close interaction with some other, other with a capital O, some other, that produces a rare sense of unity with these usually foreign entities. So in other words, you know, this sense of separate self we have. When, when that starts to expand outwards, we start to have this contact with otherness that we don't usually get. And he says, <coughs> take my glasses off again, these experiences <coughs> are just as real for the people experiencing them as the feeling of being hungry or of walking into a wall. And he says there's nothing mysterious or magical about them. They're kind of everyday. Okay, so that's number seven, loss of self, sense of self. Number eight is your sense of time is altered. Hours pass by in minutes, or seemingly in minutes, and minutes can stretch out to seem to be hours. It's usually the first, usually hour, the time goes by very quickly, but sometimes it goes by very, very slowly. So when you're in the sense of flow, you're not dependent upon the clock. Um, flow has its own pace with its own sequences of events, marking transitions from one state to another without regard to intervals of time. So I thought all that was very, very interesting. One of the very interesting things I found was that Mihai didn't dream this up. He didn't sit down and think it all up. What he did was interviewed people thousands and thousands of people and he also did this thing where he uh, gave someone a pager and every now and then um, not at particular times but um, random times it would go off and they'd have to stop what they were doing and write down exactly what they were doing in the state they were in thousands of people doing this for days and days on end and he's got all those records so it's really from people's experience this is actually people's experience it's not a psychological theory Okay, now the key element of flow, he says, is that the activity is an end in itself. Even if you undertake the activity for other reasons, it becomes so consuming to you that it becomes intrinsically rewarding in itself. For example, you might want to study something so that you can have a qualification. Or you might want to take up a sport so that you become fit. So as long as you're studying only to get that qualification, or as long as you're playing tennis, let's say, only to become fit, you won't get into that state of flow. But if you begin to become actually interested in the thing that you're studying for its own sake, and you, become, you begin to enjoy playing tennis, if that's the sport, then you're much more likely to enter this state of flow. And he calls this the autotelic experience. Autotelic. So auto comes from Greek. Auto means self. Uh, telos uh, means goal. So he calls it the autotelic experience, which means for him the self-contained activity. So when an action is autotelic, you are paying attention to the activity for its own sake, not for some other future goal. Okay, so I'm just going to read one last thing he says about it. Every flow experience has this in common. 
It provides a sense of discovery, a creative feeling of transporting the person into a new reality. It pushes the person into new levels of performance and leads to previously undreamed of states of consciousness. In short, it transforms the self by making it more complex. And it is in this growth of the self that lies the key to flow activities. Okay, so having said all that, because it sounds great, doesn't it? It sounds like a totally positive and good thing. Having said all that, he also makes the point that it's morally neutral. Um, juvenile stealing cars and performing acts of vandalism have described their activities exactly the same way as being in a state of flow. So have war, so have war veter veterans on the front line. So, it's, in a sense you could say flow is an experience which is neither good nor bad morally. And another, sometimes not very good thing about flow is that it becomes addictive. That you enjoy it so much that everything else just goes by the board and all you want to do is experience this state of flow. So, it's not altogether a good thing. So, later on, not in this book, but later when he was being interviewed, he said that there, there has to be an ethical dimension to flow. And he called this flow with soul. <laughs> flow with soul. Okay. Now, I found that really fascinating. I don't know about you. And I saw all kinds of connections with Buddhism. And I'm not going to draw all those connections for you because it would take too long. Um, but one of the things uh, Mihai said was that he didn't discover flow or he didn't make it up kind of thing. It's as old as humanity. Uh, but he thought that it needs to be reframed, re rethought about and re-talked about every maybe couple of generations. Going back to ancient Buddhist texts, you can see that they were talking about flow quite a lot actually. You can see many uh, similarities with Buddhism. For instance, the idea that happiness has to be created by yourself and it takes effort. That's just, that is just Buddhism. I'm just going to read you again what he said earlier. Enjoyment is active. It occurs when you've not only met some prior expectation or satisfied a need or desire, but also gone beyond what you've been programmed to do and achieved something unexpected, perhaps something even unimagined before. That sounds just like it could come from one of Sangharach's lectures, doesn't it? Um, so anybody who knows anything about Buddhism will have recognised a lot of what Mihai, Cheek Sent Mihai, was talking about there. For instance, meditation. Access, concentration in meditation and the dhyanas are often described in very, very similar ways that uh, he talks about flow. So when you're in dhyana, when you're in this meditative state, you're so absorbed in the objects of concentration that there's nothing else. Worries drop, a, uh, drop away. Thoughts about the past and the future drop away. You're just there with your objects of concentration. And your awareness is merged with the ob object of meditation. And your sense of time is completely altered. And also, of course, your sense of self disappears in meditative states too. Now, I could give a whole talk on that, but I won't do. Now, Mihai says that flow is experienced when your capabilities match the activity that you're doing. So that you're so concentrated on what you're doing that there's no room for anything else. Um, 
about a year, a couple of years ago, I was working in a doctor's surgery as a receptionist. And um, my favourite job was sitting out on the front desk on a Monday morning, because Monday mornings are mad in doctor's surgeries. Uh, what happens is all the people who forgot their repeat prescriptions on Friday are coming in, gasping for their drugs, <laughs> needing to see a doctor immediately. All the people who have been a bit ill over the weekend come in and they've got to see a doctor now. And the phone's going, you know, madly. So you're there and you just have to respond. So people are coming up, the phone's going. And you're just complete. well I used to be, get completely absorbed in what, and I used to love it. And all the other receptionists used to be amazed. They used to say, you really seem to enjoy that. And I loved it. So you loved it. It's only now that I've read about flow, I think, oh, that's why I liked it so much. I was just completely taken up by doing that job. Um, but perhaps it's quite rare for flow to happen, for this meeting of capabilities and task exactly. Um, probably is quite rare for you know your your capabilities to exactly match the task so that you're completely absorbed in what you're doing however he says that we can experience flow in ordinary everyday activities like housework how by a, by paying full attention to the task just really being with the task not doing anything else so obviously that reminds us all of mindfulness. Mindfulness is the skill of just doing what you're doing and nothing else. So just by practicing mindfulness, you can enter into a state of flow. He also mentions ritual, which I find very interesting. Ritual is a way of getting into this state of flow. I hate ritual. I don't think I've ever got into... I've been 30 years a Buddhist, and I don't think I've ever been in a state of flow by doing rituals, so I gave it up a couple of years ago. I just don't like it. Being a doctor's receptionist really works much better for me. <laughs> okay, so underpinning these Buddhist practices is ethics, morality, or energy in pursuit of the good. So underneath all of the Buddhist practices that help you to get into a state of flow is this flow with soul. Another thing I find interesting about his findings is that he says they happen in the midst of many different activities, but usually when you're doing something that you enjoy, cooking, gardening, uh, talking to friends. Um, and surprisingly, he says, often at work, which is very interesting. He says people get into the state of flow much more often at work than they do at home, which is a bit chastening, isn't it? Okay, so I find that very interesting because Sangharashta has spoken about direct methods and indirect methods of working on your consciousness. And the direct method is meditation, where you're sitting with closed eyes and you're working on your mind. Mind working on mind. Indirect methods, all sorts of other things you can do where your mind is working on your mind but through another activity. And I sometimes think that um, this is purely a personal opinion, I have to say, but I'm going to tell you anyway, that I think that there's rather an overemphasis on meditation in uh, modern Western Buddhist movements. I think it's overemphasized. I think too much is made of it. I hardly ever get into a state of flow when I'm meditating either. I quite like meditating, but I never get into this flow state. I get into it when I'm working. I'm 
making love and uh, really communicating with people. When I'm having a bit of a sort out with someone, when our communication's gone a bit wrong, that's when it happens to me. So um, anyway, I just thought I'd say that, but I think that sometimes we overemphasize meditation. The important thing is to get into this state of selflessness and timelessness. That's the important thing. And however you can get into that state, I think we should do that. How often do people get into a state of flow, actually? Um, apparently, one in five people say several times a day. And 15% of people say not at all. There was a survey in Germany with 6,500 people involved in it, and they said often 23%, sometimes 40%, rarely 25%, never or don't know 12%. So the Germans are really quite good at flow, aren't they? <laughs> but even those people who say they experience flow quite a lot don't experience it all the time so what about the rest of the time are we only happy when we're experiencing flow or we can, can we be happy other than that experience part two authentic happiness by Martin Seligman this is this book with a very busy cover it's like a best-selling kind of cover, doesn't it? Lots of things happening all over the place. Um, so Martin Seligman is a psychologist, and he started up a new psychology, psychology movement called Positive Psychology. And he says that psychology has been concerned with illness and suffering up until now, and not enough attention given to health and happiness. And he is very influenced by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, and he says that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi is the brains behind positive psychology, and I am the voice. <laughs> but I think that Mihai Csikszentmihalyi has got a voice as well. But anyway, so he called his book Authentic Happiness because people often think of happiness as being somehow inauthentic and unreal perhaps a little bit shallow and uh, so he says no 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 authentic happiness is a definite state you know it's authentic when you get into this state of happiness it's real and it has definite effects so I'm just going to give you some of the ideas behind this book because they're quite interesting first of all I'm going to tell you about the research on nuns that um, some psychologists have done so much research in the last 50 years on happiness and things like that this was a this was um research on happiness and longevity and they chose a whole bunch of nuns because the nuns all lived in much the same kind of conditions eating the same food not drinking alcohol not smoking and so on so they were a kind of set bunch of people who they can compare um how many youngs how many nuns was it 180 nuns from the school sisters of Notre Dame in America. Um, some lived longer than others, so they were interested to see if there was, if they could find out why. Now, what they did was, uh, when, when each nun joined the, what was it, convent, the school, um, they had to write a little sketch about themselves. So I'm just going to read you two sketches. I'm going to read them to you and see if you can see if there's a difference between the two. Okay. So the first one, Celia O'Pain, in 1932. She said, God started my life off well by bestowing upon me grace of inestimable value. 
The past year, which I spent as a candidate studying at Notre Dame, has been a very happy one. Now I look forward with eager joy to receiving the holy habit of Our Lady and to a life of union with love divine. Okay, that's Celia Payne. Now here, same year, same city, Marguerite Donnelly. My candidate year was spent in the mother house, teaching chemistry and second year Latin at Notre Dame Institution. With God's grace, I intend to do my best for our order, for the spread of religion and for my personal satisfaction. Okay, did you notice any difference between the two? You're allowed to speak, by the way. <laughs> language? What's the difference in the language? Particular feelings. Positive emotions. She expressed positive emotions. Hmm? Enthusiasm. Enthusiasm, yep. Um, I'll just, uh, she said, very happy and eager joy. Both expressions of positive emotion. Okay, so what's, why am I telling you all this? What they, out of these 180 nuns, and they looked at all these little sketches, what they found out was the amount of positive emotion expressed in those little sketches, they quantified. And the people who did this didn't know how long the nuns lived, but what they found out was that 90% of the most cheerful ones, the ones who expressed good cheer, were still alive at 85, and only 34% of the least cheerful ones were still alive at 85. 54% of the most cheerful ones were still alive at 94, and only 11% of the least cheerful ones were alive at 94. Now you might think, well, so what? But it's interesting, isn't it? It might mean that the more happy you are now and positive you are now, the longer you live. Another little uh, research thing done on the smile, how much people smile. They studied 141 students from Mills College, Berkeley, America. And what they did, they studied the photographs taken in the yearbook. 141 <laughs> photographs. All but three of them were smiling in the photograph. But there were two kinds of smile. Have you heard about the two kinds of smile? There's the Duchenne smile and there's the Pan Am smile. Okay. <laughs> the Duchenne smile is named after its discoverer, Guillaume Duchenne. And that's the genuine smile when you just, like most of you are smiling right now. You, that's the Duchenne smile, okay? Completely sincere, genuine. The Pan Am smile was named after the TV ads of Pan Am hostesses smiling at the camera. Okay, don't know if you remember those. But they, a lot of them weren't genuine. Okay, so there's a Duchenne smile and the Pan Am smile. And the researchers distinguished between the two kinds of smile. And all these students were contacted later at the ages of 27, 43 and 52 and asked about their marriage and life satisfaction. The, 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 the people um, with the Duchenne, they were all women, did I tell you that, they were all women. The Duchenne women, it was found, were much more likely to be happily married than to experience personal well-being than the Pan Am women. <laughs> Okay, so having said that about the Pan Am smile, which is not all that sincere, I need a pen. I meant to bring a pen up with me. 
Thank you. Another little bit of research, this doesn't come in any of those books, but it's a bit of research I heard at a conference a little while ago. Um, they, psychologists, have been doing studies on the smile, and they found out that just by making yourself smile, it affects your mood, you become happier. So if you just manage to smile more often, you'll become happier. And the way they found this out was, they got people to hold a pencil in their mouth like this. And then, they got them to read a really unpleasant bit of news. And then they got them to watch a Buster Keaton movie, all like this. And what they found out, and then they got a whole other bunch of people not to hold a pen in their mouth and listen to a bad bit of news, then watch a Buster Keaton movie. And then they got a whole another bunch of people to hold a pen like this in their mouth. Do the same two things. And what they found is, the people like this weren't so badly affected by the news and they laughed much more at the Buster Keaton movie than the others. The ones like this were really quite miserable afterwards. So you really need to be careful about what you do with your face, the way your muscles move around, because it does affect the way you actually feel. There is a, a serious point there. Okay, so Mihai Chik sent Mihai is Hungarian. Uh, Martin Seligman is American, and it does show in the way they write. Uh, Chicken sent me high, which makes it quite clear that his book is not a self-help book, it's a very serious kind of <coughs> book. Uh, whereas Seligman, quite unashamedly, said this is a self-help book, and it does read like one in some ways. Um, it's a mixture, a funny mixture of quite rigorous research and enthusiastic proselytizing American style. But it's very good, very good book. He says that positive psychology has three pillars. First of all, the positive emotions, and he lists them, or some of them. Joy, flow, I've heard about flow now. Glee, what on earth is glee? <laughs> Pleasure, contentment, serenity, hope, ecstasy. And then there are the positive traits, or the strengths, or the virtues, and I'll, I'm going to talk a bit about those in a minute, so I won't say what they are. And then the positive institutions that support the strengths or the virtues, that in turn support the positive emotions. So he's got a whole thing worked out. So I'm going to say a little bit about the positive strengths, because he's got something very interesting to say here. You could call them virtues or even values. So he and his colleagues were very concerned that they didn't pick particular moral strengths from their particular culture, i.e. white, American, middle class values. So what they did, a whole team of psychologists, they read Aristotle, Plato, Aquinas, Augustine, the Old Testament and the Talmud, Confucius, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, the Samurai Code, the Quran, Benjamin Franklin, the Upanishads, 200 what they call virtue catalogues. And to their surprise, almost every one of these traditions endorsed six virtues. So I'm going to tell you what they are. First one, wisdom and knowledge. That's the first one. Courage. Love and humanity. Justice. Temperance. Spirituality and transcendence. So they came up with these six core virtues. And then... Um, they came up with a number of routes by which these virtues or these strengths could be attained. And, um, for instance, uh, 
We'll take the last one, spirituality and transcendence. So ways that you can become more spiritual and more transcendent. Appreciation of beauty and excellence. So appreciation, really. Gratitude. Hope, or what they call, they call optimism or future-mindedness. Spirituality or sense of purposeness or faith. Forgiveness and mercy. Playfulness and humour. Zest or passion or enthusiasm. So those are the seven ways to approach spirituality and uh, transcendence. So altogether they came up with 24 of these roots. And the way to become happy, they reckon, is to work on all these strengths, these 24 strengths. Can't give you a list of them because they take me too long. But you will be stronger in some areas than others. Some things you'll be quite weak in, others you'll be quite strong in. And what he does is he recommends that you identify your particular, what he calls, signature strengths. Things that are really you, what you are. And he actually gives you a questionnaire to help you do this. And then you find ways to express them in your life. Or you find situations in which you can best express these signature strengths. At work, at home, at play and in love. If you can express your signature strengths all the time, you'll be happy. And when you do this, you're more likely to experience flow. So this is a very interesting idea. He distinguishes between strengths and um, talents. Strengths are moral, there's a moral dimension. Talents are neither moral nor immoral. Strengths can be developed no matter who you are. Talents are either given or, or you haven't got them. So, by doing this, what Seligman has done is he's got this idea of flow and he's injected this moral dimension to it. So, flow with soul. So, he gives an example. It's a very good example here. Tells the story of John Haidt, another psychologist, who began his career working on disgust. Things people do for a living. <laughs> disgust is what he did for many years. And he got people to eat fried grasshoppers and tested their reactions. That was physical disgust. Then he turned to moral disgust and he got people to put on a t-shirt allegedly worn by Adolf Hitler. He got them to put that on and tested their reactions against that as well. After he was worn down by all his explorations, he turned to the opposite of moral disgust and what he calls elevation. And he collected stories of people who'd watched other people doing really kind acts. I'm just going to read you... Uh, aha, wrong book. This is the book. Wrong page. Okay. So this is an 18-year-old from the University of Virginia. Um, this is what he says. We were going home from working at the Salvation Army on a snowy night. We passed an old woman shoveling her driveway. One of the guys asked the driver to let him out. I thought he was just going to take a shortcut home. But when I saw him pick up the shovel, well, I felt a lump in my throat and started to cry. I wanted to tell everyone about it. I felt romantic toward him. It's interesting that, isn't it? 
So, um, coming back to Martin Seligman, he had a class of psychology students at university, and they, they um, were wondering whether happiness comes from the ex of exercise of kindness more readily than it does from having fun. And they had, apparently had a heated debate, so they decided they would test it out. So the next week, they decided they'd all go away, and they'd all perform an act of kindness, and they'd all have fun, and they'd write about each one, the effects it had on them. So they did that. Perhaps here we just have to remind ourselves of the context. It's a university. It's not a Buddhist centre, so, you know. But he says... I'm quoting here, the results were life-changing. The, the afterglow of the pleasurable activities, hanging out with friends, watching a movie, eating a hot fudge sundae, paled in comparison to the effects of the kind action. When the kind acts were spontaneous and called on our personal strengths, the whole day went better. And he says that kindness is not accompanied, this I find really interesting, not accompanied by a separable stream of positive emotion such as joy. Rather, it consists in total engagement in the loss of self-consciousness. Sorry, total engagement and the loss of self-consciousness. So when you perform kind act, you're totally engaged, you lose sense of self. Time stops. In other words you experience a state of flow. Okay, one final and important point from this particular book, Authentic Happiness. People are happier, he says, when they do things in the service of something larger, larger than themselves. And he calls this meaning. When you've got meaning in your life, you'll be happier. People are happiest when they employ their signature strengths in the service of something meaningful or bigger than themselves. That could be anything. Could be religion, could be Buddhism, Christianity, could be politics, ecology, arts, philanthropy, whatever. Anything that you consider to be more than you are. Very good book. The only thing I found confusing was his idea of positive emotions. He seemed to include pleasure, like bodily pleasures, along in the positive emotions, along with things like kindness, and it just didn't sit very easily with me. So for him, positive emotion is any pleasurable feeling. Buddhism, of course, distinguishes between positive emotion on the one hand and pleasure, pleasurable feeling on the other. So, very often po positive emotions do feel pleasurable, such as love, faith, joy. But because positive emotions often feel pleasurable, we think they're the same thing. But actually, they're not, because some positive emotions actually feel unpleasant. For instance, shame. When you've done something that is beneath you kind of thing, you feel shame. Well, that doesn't feel very nice. It's not a good feeling, but it's very, very positive. Shame as opposed from guilt. And also, concern for others doesn't always feel very positive, uh, pleasurable. Sometimes you can be very concerned about somebody and what's happening to them. Very positive emotion, but not pleasurable at all. So, pleasure and positive are not the same things in Buddhism. Still, his idea of positive strengths is really good, I think. And his idea that by expressing them, you experience this state of flow, I think could give us the clue as to why ethics leads to meditation. In Buddhism, you start with ethics, then you go on to meditation. And um, I think this gives us a clue, because when you're practicing ethics, kindness, for instance, in a sense, 
you are already meditating. Yeah? Kindness has its own reward. It's not that you practice ethics and then later you're able to meditate. When you're practicing ethics, you're in a meditative state already. Okay, and also his idea of positive institutions that, that um, support the positive strengths is a very good idea, I think. Positive institutions he mentions, and he is American, democracy, strong family, free inquiry. Where have you heard that before? Um, so Buddhism has its own positive institutions, and perhaps the most important one being Sangha or spiritual community. And that's why the Sangha is so important. And that's why we're celebrating it today, because it supports positive emotions, and that supports happiness. Part three, happiness by Richard Layard. I'm just going to say a little bit about this. But yeah. I'm terribly sorry, could I just go back to one point? You said there were six virtues in all these great yeah. writers, etc. Uh -huh. And I managed to get down four. Could you just repeat those six? I'll tell you afterwards. Oh. Come to me afterwards, yes. Yeah. Okay, so this is a very interesting book, Happiness by Richard Layard. He's an economist, and he called subtitle Lessons from a New Science, the new science being positive psychology. Whether positive psychology is a science or not, I think is open to debate. Probably more like an art, I think. But anyway, he's looking at happiness from the economic and therefore political point of view. There's a very interesting little thing at the bottom here by Andrew Marr, the uh, political uh, journalist. He says, if happiness isn't a political issue, what's the point of politics? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I never considered politics to do with, uh, that had anything to do with happiness before. I've never known anyone become happy as a result of politics. <laughs> I've known people get angry, feel betrayed, let down, frustrated, but I've never known anyone become actually happy through politics. But so anyway, I could be wrong. He says... This is Richard Layard now. Broadly speaking, economics equates changes in happiness with changes in purchasing power. I've never accepted that view, and the history of the last 50 years has disproved it. So in other words, he says that economists assume that people become happier the more they can buy. And he says, not true. And the last 50 years have disproved it. So how has the last 50 years disproved this? Well, apparently in the last 50 years... Our income in this country has doubled, yet we're no happier. How do we know we're no happier than we were 50 years ago? Well, I was only two 50 years ago. <laughs> Probably very happy. Um, people of 50 years ago. Well, apparently research has shown this, and I haven't got time to go into how they've all done it, but you'll just have to take my word for it for the sake of this talk. So Richard Layard wanted to understand how come we're no happier? So, okay, suppose you were asked to choose between living in two imaginary worlds in which prices were the same, okay? In the first world, you would get £50,000 a year, while everyone else in that world got £25,000 a year on average. Or in the second world, you could get £100,000 a year, while everyone else will get £250,000 a year. Okay, so I want you to close your eyes again. I'm asking you to close your eyes so you don't see what anybody else is doing. Close eyes. Okay, so you've got the choice of these two worlds. 
In the first world you get £50,000 a year while everybody else gets 25000 In the second world you get 100000 a year while everyone else gets 250000 Who would choose the first world? Put your hand up. No one else can see you, it's okay except for me, I know. Okay, who would choose the second world? Uh, it's about even. Okay, good. Well, not good, it's just what it is, isn't it? <laughs> This question was put to a group of Harvard students and the majority preferred the first type of world. And many other studies have come up with the same. Probably it's evens here because we're a Buddhist community. The majority of people, it seems, would prefer to have less income as long as they were getting more than everybody else. So it's not our absolute income that makes us happier, or not. It's our relative income, it's how much we get compared to everybody else that either makes us happy or not. So that would explain partly why we are no happier than we were 50 years ago. Our income has gone up, but so has so everybody else's income. Research has shown that once you get above the breadline, earning more money doesn't make you very much happier. It has a little bit of effect, but not very much. Of course, people on subsistence levels become much happier if they get a higher income, because it really matters to them. But once you've got enough to live on, having more money doesn't make much difference. So it's the comparison of incomes which makes us happy or unhappy. If you get a rise in wages, you become happier, don't you? But if everyone gets a rise in the wage, it doesn't make you much happier at all. And the same with the drop of income. Therefore, if someone else gets a rise, everyone else becomes a bit unhappy compared to them. So that's one reason why we're not much happier. But there's another reason why we're not much happier, no happier, in fact, than people 50 years ago, even though our income has more than doubled. Habituation. We become used to new levels of income. This is what Seligman calls the hedonic treadmill. When we get something new, a new job, new car, house, high income, new lover, get married. We feel elated at first. We, get, we feel really happy. And we think we're going to be happy like this now forever because we've got this new thing. But it lasts about a couple of weeks. <laughs> Maybe a bit longer. And then our happiness level reverts back to what it was before. So hence the hedonic treadmill. If you want to keep up that same level of happiness, you have to keep getting new things about every two weeks. New marriage, another new job, new house. Okay, so things that have a negligible effect on happiness, according to research. Age. Age has no effect on happiness, apparently. Young people can be happy, old people can be happy or unhappy. It doesn't have any effect. Gender. Whether you're a man or a woman doesn't make any difference to your happiness levels. Looks. Whether you're good-looking or not, doesn't make any difference to how happy you are. IQ has a very weak effect on happiness. And education doesn't have much effect either. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? The big seven things that do affect happiness, and I'm only going to mention them, so I've got time for. Family relationships. Financial situation. And presumably that's your financial situation as compared to others. Work. Community and friends, health, personal freedom, 
and personal values. These are the things that make a difference. So I haven't got time to go into this. Now in the second half of this book, Richard Layard, he looks at ways in which we might improve our lives. And he does this in two ways. He looks internally and externally. Internally, he mentions a number of things, but the first thing he mentioned is Buddhism. He's got a few pages on Buddhism. Very nice couple of pages on mindfulness, compassion, and so on. Mystical tradition, cognitive therapy, positive psychology, and what he calls education of the spirit. So that's internally. Externally, lovely idea. He thinks that society would be better if we based our ethical, social, economic, political lives on Jeremy Bentham's principle of the greatest happiness. This is uh, the greatest happiness says that all laws and all actions should aim at producing the greatest possible happiness and that society is good, Bentham said, insofar as its citizens are happy. Any decision, public or private, should be judged by its impact on the happiness of those affected by it, each person counting equally. And he mentions the Kingdom of Bhutan, Buddhist Kingdom of Bhutan. In 1998, the king announced that his nation's objective would not be gross national product, but gross national happiness. Unfortunately, a year later, he lifted the ban on TV and it had a very bad effect on society, apparently. Haven't got time to go into that. So I just want to rejoice in the merits of these three authors. Very intelligent, very compassionate men. All three books are well worth reading. Lots of valuable ideas and insights in them. Worth reading, worth studying. Very good. Um, the two blue books I ordered for the bookshops, they should be in the bookshop downstairs soon. Should have been here today, but they're not. Okay, they have added to the stock of happiness in the world, I would say. At the same time, they do have their limitations. None of them go as far as Buddhism does. Buddhism is also concerned with happiness. It also distinguishes happiness from pleasure, just as Mihai Csikszentmihalyi does. But Buddhism also dis discusses different levels of happiness, which none of these authors do. Specifically, it talks about conditioned happiness and unconditioned happiness. What does this mean? It means, conditioned happiness means that one's happiness is dependent on certain conditions being present. And when those conditions are present, you can be happy. However, take those conditions away, you're no longer happy. According to Buddhism, I mean, Buddhism does teach the benefits of that kind of happiness, conditioned happiness, but it also talks about unconditioned happiness. So according to Buddhism, there is this other kind of happiness, which is not dependent upon conditions. So this is the experience of enlightenment. And enlightenment is true happiness for this reason. You could say that enlightenment is like experiencing flow all the time. For example, in enlightenment, not talking from experience here, I'm, I've read lots of books. In enlightenment, there is no consciousness of self, it is said. No self as separate from what you're doing. And there's this sense of union with your environment. And activity and awareness emerged. So an enlightened person experiences this all the time. 
The enlightened person doesn't need to be doing anything, doesn't need any special conditions to make him or her happy. An enlightened person doesn't have any reason to be happy, you could say. Doesn't need to be doing anything in particular. Doesn't need a certain level of income. Doesn't even need to feel good. Enlightened person doesn't need anything at all. Um, Sangharachita said once that the Buddhist goal is not happiness, but freedom. I think he was being a bit provocative there, because I would say that what the Buddhist goal is, the happiness that comes from freedom. So an enlightened person is happy because he or she feels completely free. Free of all conditions. So I'm going to read you from a Buddhist book. Interesting religion that uh, goes into happiness here. Okay, this is from the songs of Milarepa. Milarepa lived in a cave in Tibet. He didn't have anything at all. Um, wandered around with naked, ate nettles for lunch and so on. So here he's singing. He's singing a song of happiness. He sings, I need not this or that, so I am happy. Because I possess the great wealth of Dharma, I am happy. Because I worry not about property, I am happy. Because I have no fear of losing anything, I am happy. As I need prepare for nothing, I am happy. Since all I do complies with Dharma, I am happy. Never desiring to move, I am happy. As the thought of death brings me no fear, I am happy. Bandits, thieves and robbers ne'er molest me, so at all times I am happy. Having won the best conditions for Dharma practice, I am happy. Having ceased from evil deeds and left off sinning, I am happy. It goes on like this. Just everything makes him happy. Nothing makes him unhappy. I have to be a bit careful here, bringing in this idea of enlightenment. Because enlightenment is a very high ideal, very lofty ideal. And it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort to achieve this state. And for certain kinds of people, people who are prone to depression, living with this very high ideal can come to seem oppressive. Because from a certain point of view, you're always failing. Always failing to reach the ideal. And this can make you quite unhappy. I'm telling you this from experience now. So how to live with this very high ideal without it oppressing you? Well, I'm going to go back to Mihai Chik Sent Mihai, who goes back to Buddhism. He says, Buddhists advise us to act always as if the future of the universe depended on what you did, while laughing at yourself for thinking whatever you do makes any difference. <laughs> and he calls this serious playfulness. This is a great idea, isn't it? Serious playfulness, which makes it possible to be engaged and carefree at the same time. Fantastic idea. I didn't even know it was Buddhist, that. <laughs> but there's also a problem, I think, with this idea of enlightenment, because it's often put forward as some future state that you're trying to attain. You're not enlightened now, but you could be in the future if you really work at it kind of idea. So deferring true happiness to some future time. I think a better way to, it, to relate to this idea of enlightenment is to see it as a guiding star. A way of being that's relevant to you as you are now. 
What Buddhism is saying, I think, is that happiness is essentially unconditioned for everybody. Happiness is essentially unconditioned for everyone. Or it can be. It just requires imagination. We can be happy now, no matter what our conditions, because essentially we're free. It's possible for us to be happy now for no reason at all. Yeah, no reason, just happy. For no other reason than that we're alive. Bill Bryson in his book, uh, Notes of a Sh from a Small Island, uh, mentions in the beginning of one chapter, he says, as long as you bear these three things in mind, you'll always be happy. Okay, first one, you were born. Okay, that should make you happy. Second one, you're alive. And being alive is a miracle. Third one, you live in a time of peace and plenty. And importantly, uh, tie a yellow ribbon around the old oak tree will never be one, number one again. That should make you really happy. But anyway, just, there's no reason to be happy. Just happiness. We're breathing in and out. That's enough. Being alive in itself is quite amazing, isn't it? Okay, what's all this got to do with Sangha though? Because it's supposed to be a talk on Sangha day, isn't it? I'm going to refer back to, I am going to finish in a minute. I'm going to refer back to Richard Layard's book. This is the last point I'm going to make. And he has a very interesting discussion in there on trust. One way in which we're in fact unhappier than people were 50 years ago in this country is that we don't trust people as much as they did then. In 1959, people in Britain were asked, would you say that most people can be trusted? And 56% said yes. In 1998, people were asked the same question and it had fallen down to 30%. Now you might think, yes, but does that really say anything? Are people really less trusted, trustworthy than they were 50 years ago? Or is this one of those examples of, all oh, the good old days kind of thing? It probably is true. Crime rates apparently have gone up by 300%. Researchers have asked this question, this very question, would you say that most people have been trusted in lots of different countries? In Brazil, only 5% of people said yes. In Norway, 64%. To see if these figures reflected the actual state of things, in other words, to see if what people said about how much they could trust people reflected how much people were trustworthy, they dropped wallets all over the place, all over the world. Wallets. <laughs> Included in the wallet was the owner's name and address. Then they counted up the number of wallets returned to each owner from each different country, and the results of the number of wallets collected were related very closely to what people said about how much they felt they could trust people. So our level of trust in this country has gone quite low, 30%. And when we live in a society where, where the level of trust is low, we are less happy. It makes us unhappy. Um, tests have been done with a brain scanner. Um, what they did is they got people and they got them to... Um, a kind of game where they had to put up a certain amount of money and uh, if they put up a certain amount of money it was dependent on someone they didn't know not taking it and so it's kind of a trust game and when people did put up that money the bit in the, the brain that lit, lights up when you're happy lit up 
yeah so when you trust someone it makes you happy we're kind of wired to trust people we want to trust people it makes us happy when we trust trust means community in a way and community means trust no trust no community a man came on a recent pain management course with us breathworks he was a trade union official he only came to the course because his wife made him come and on the first class he said I'm very sceptical about all this stuff I'm not into touchy-feely <laughs> made it quite clear what he said anyway he did complete the course and then he his job by the way was going to tribunals and fighting court cases for people after he completed the course I saw him a little while later and he said he'd been to our open day here and he went to a meditation class so I just I said, well, how did you find it? He said, I thoroughly enjoyed it. He said he liked the Manchester Buddhist Centre because people were very trusting. Too trusting, he said. They're too trusting. <laughs> really liked the atmosphere of trust. So that really touched me, that did. The Manchester Buddhist Centre, which means the people involved in it, which means me and you, the Sangha, you and I, we're adding to the stock of happiness in the world by practicing ethics, meditation, wisdom, mindfulness, kindness, and so on. We're making ourselves happier, but we're also allowing other people to be happier. Happiness is infectious. When we're happy, we feel abundant. It's very easy to give when you feel happy very easy to be kind when you feel happy you can give and you can be kind when you're unhappy but it's much harder you really have to go against the grain so by being happy we feel full and abundant or we just want to give out from that sense of abundance so I'd like to finish by rejoicing in the merits of the Sangha all of us involved in the Manchester Buddhist Centre all people practicing the Dharma in and around Manchester the whole Sangha worldwide the Sangha is a force for good in the world. It's a cause of great happiness and may it thrive. Now I'm just going to finish with one last quote. This is Jeremy Bentham. Just before he died, he wrote a birthday letter to the daughter, young daughter of a friend of his. In it he wrote, create all the happiness you are able to create. Remove all the misery you're able to remove. Every day will allow you to add something to the pleasure of others, or to diminish something of their pains. And for every grain of enjoyment you sow in the bosom of another, you shall find a harvest in your own Buddhism. While every sorrow which you pluck out from the thoughts and feelings of a fellow creature shall be replaced by beautiful peace and joy in the sanctuary of your soul. Be happy. <laughs>